Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. John chapter 10, verse 22 to 42. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spake about this man were true, and many believed in him there. You may be seated. We have been spending the last couple months now studying John's gospel account of the life of Christ. And we have, again, brought this slide up every single time in order to continue to remind ourselves John's purpose in writing this. And indeed, over the last few weeks, we have been seeing Jesus declaring this over and over and over again, that this is all about Jesus being the Son of God who came, took on flesh in order that he might become the Lamb of God in order to take away the sins of the world. And again, then the unity of the church is built upon that core doctrine, which we'll see as we come up. But a couple weeks ago, we looked in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, and we saw that Jesus drew, if you would, a proverbial line in the sand, and uh, which is kind of fun that I, I put this in here, line in the sand, because we're going to come to the actual people in a moment where this statement actually came from. Um, don't worry about it now. You'll see it in a moment. Um, oh, yeah, I actually won't see it. I'll tell you. But, um, but this line in the sand where he basically says, unless you believe I am, I am, you're going to die in your sins. And so we spent an entire Sunday going through what egoi me or I am, I am really meant to the Jews. They got it. They understood. Jesus was declaring his deity. In fact, they wanted to kill him as a result of it. 
and so um, we're not talking about the the um, the the metaphorical IMs. Last week, um, uh, Chuck dealt with number three and four of those. I am the door, and I am the good shepherd. We're going to overlap just a little bit again today, but just as a um, I want to show this. Okay, this is without the sound. I didn't like hearing her say use God's name in vain over and over again. But watch the video. It's a good reminder of of last week. It's only about fifteen seconds left. So he's speaking. Look, they're all looking at him. This is the shepherd. They're all looking at him, and watch what happens. He calls to them, and they begin to what? They begin to come. And so as Chuck taught on this, it was a, a very powerful statement about who Jesus is as the good shepherd, how he provides for us, how he cares for us. And then ultimately, though, how it is a picture of the good shepherd recorded in Psalm 23. Every Jew understood Psalm 23 as almost everybody in the face of the earth today. I mean, it's amazing. If you have any inclinations of Christianity, there are two things that you know. What are the two things? Now, I see, not John 3.16. That's, I'll give you that as number three. The Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23. I don't care what denomination you are. You're going to know the Lord's Prayer. You know, you just start quoting it, and everybody just starts going with you. You start quoting Psalm 23, and most people can start quoting it with you. Because at funerals, I mean, it's, it's everywhere, right? And so, but the core of this is the very beginning, the very first words of it is Yahweh. Yahweh. So remember, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh's name. Ego me, right? The I am, okay? And so he says, Yahweh is my shepherd. And then he goes on to describe what this good shepherd is like. And that's exactly what Jesus is taking to himself. Again, we saw it in Isaiah chapter 40 um, and beyond, where the, that Yahweh declares himself to be that shepherd. And so today we want to continue on into this, um, this statement that Jesus is making regarding the shepherd, because in this, we're going to talk more today about the our eternal security and about the deity of the Godhead um, and what it looks like, the unity of the Godhead. But it's all in this backdrop then of what's going on right now. And so before we can get into the statement, I want to just take five minutes, hopefully only, okay, and talk about, Chuck said I've mentioned this a little bit. And so it's about the Feast of Dedication. We know it as Hanukkah, okay? And so I, I put up Hanukkah, but I, I really, I, I changed it because I had K-H-A in it because it's, it's Hanukkah. And so that, because it starts with a cheth, cheth. So it's not Hanukkah, that would be a hey, but it's with a cheth. So it's Hanukkah. Anyways, but you can do whatever you want with it. So, but it's the Feast of Dedication. It's the Feast of Lights, okay, that we understand today. And it's a how long? How long is that feast? Say again? Eight days. It's an eight-day feast. Do you know why? Say again, because the oil lasted eight days, and so we're going to get there. So it all starts in, Deuter in Daniel chapter 11. I don't have time for all this, but if you go back to March 29th, 2009, and listen to the message, okay, I spent the entire time going through this prophecy, incredible prophecy. Um, liberals, they, they, they want to believe that the book of Daniel had to be written later, and it couldn't have been written when it was written, because God gives to Daniel extreme details about um, 
Alexander, and, and, and then how his kingdom is going to be broken up into four kingdoms between uh, Lysanchemus, Lysamachus, uh, Cassandrus, uh, Seleucus, and uh, Ptolemy. And so he had four generals. When, when he went through the world, he died in India, right? And so when he dies, his kingdom is broken up into four kingdoms, okay? Two of them want to become in the predominant kingdoms, that's the Ptolemies, and he becomes the first one down in the south and toward Egypt, and then Seleucus becomes powerful in the Syrian region, okay? And so the two of those begin to battle it out to figure out who is the, the, the world empire. Now, this is all considered part of the Grecian part of the empire when you consider Daniel, okay? When you talk about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. So all this, not just Alexander, but all this other part is part of it. And then during this time, Rome is starting to, 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 to build up. And so I got I to gotta condense this all because this part is so exciting to me when I get into Daniel chapter 11. So read them, go listen to the message. It's 45 minutes to an hour long, okay? Of all, all detail, okay? But, but so all this is going on, but Within all this time, one individual rises up. His name is Antiochus IV, and you'll note we drop all the way down into the verses of 20s, okay? Okay, because there's all this stuff going on. Antiochus IV, who calls himself Epiphanes, the illustrious one. But the people of the land, that's Israel, hated him so much that they called him Eminenes, which means the, uh, the insane, okay? And so they had a little play on a word there, okay? But he liked to refer to himself as is the illustrious one, but he came down to the south and he fought against the Ptolemies and the Ptolemies rebuffed him. So on his way back, he, um, do I have that there? No, here's the next one. Okay, he, 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 he attacks them, but he, they get rebuffed. He goes back and he passes through Israel. Okay, note Israel is sitting there right between the two. Okay, you, don't, you hate to be the battleground. Okay, okay. So every time he goes down, he gets rebuffed. He doesn't want to go back looking bad. So he stops by Israel. And, 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 and reaps the land, okay? And so um, takes things from it. But that's not, that's not what, what he's done, because now he still wants to be what? The guy. He wants to be the guy. So now he goes down, and Rome at this point is really building up. And Rome has taken sides with the Ptolemies. Now, what has also gone on prior to this is that um, Cleopatra, you guys know Cleopatra? Well, I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about her namesake, Cleopatra I. She was actually a daughter of the Seleucid king who was given to the Ptolemaic king as a bride, okay? And so she becomes the namesake. So she's already down there. She decides that she likes the Ptolemaic king better. She likes her dad, and she becomes a turncoat. Dad sent her down because he thought that maybe she'd, you know, kind of work, worm her way in and, and be able to work this out. And he becomes the king as a whole. It didn't work that way. And so later on, Mark Antony comes down with Rome. And so her namesake later, Cleopatra. So she wasn't an Egyptian. She wasn't even a Ptolemy. She was a blend of the Ptolemies and Seleucus. She was just a Greek who was living in Egypt. Isn't that kind of fun? I love history. Anyways, so that was free. That was a little free thing. So anyways, so he comes down again. This time, he's not just rebuffed by the Ptolemies, but he's rebuffed by the Ptolemies, empowered and strengthened by the Romans, right? And so he's really upset now because this is the second time he's done it. And so now he goes back to Jerusalem. And this time, he doesn't just if you would rape the land as far as gleaning the stuff, okay? This time he goes and he, and he um, contaminates the temple. This time he goes in because he wants to make himself a god, right? And so he goes into the temple of Yahweh, into the temple of the true God, and he, and he contaminates it and he offers up swine as a, as a sacrifice. And if you know anything about the law, 
That is the ultimate contamination that he could do. And he sets up an idol of, of Zeus, right? And so, so he goes into the temple and he does this thing, just is really awful, okay? And so what do you think happens now? The rise of the Maccabeans. Judas Maccabeus, you guys, everybody know, know his name? Okay, you have first and second Maccabees. It's not part of the Bible, but it's part of the Apocrypha. Okay, it's written by the, the Maccabeans. And a lot of it um, has to do with this, this part, what's going on here. Okay, and so, so Judas Maccabeus says enough's enough. He's a high priest or a priest, and he says enough's enough. And so he rises up a revolt against the Seleucids. Okay, and so they go in and they, and they win. They, I mean, this is amazing. So they, this vagabond group, you know, they go in and they take over. This is miraculous in and of itself. They, they wipe out the Seleucids. They kick them out of the temple and they regain the temple. And then they, they purify the temple, okay, in order to get rid of the, 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 the idol, get rid of the, all the other stuff. They purify the altar. And so they can start doing their own sacrifices. But all the oil has been contaminated with probably bacon grease. Anyways, I know you think, how could that be? But anyways, but think of how that plays out for them, right? And so, yeah, we'd love it. Uh, Marsha's always asked, well, what, you know, what, which perfume did you like the best? I said, well, if you just put bacon grease, put it behind your ear, I'd probably love it. Uh, <laughs> anyways, I mean, amen. That's exactly right. I mean, if you really want to know, I'm not into all that flowery stuff, but you put some, you know, oatmeal raisin cookie or some, you know, whatever, you know, I can deal with that. But anyways, it wasn't good to them, right? And so they had to purify, and all they had was one day's worth of oil. And it took them eight days to purify some more. And so this is tradition, but it's pretty good record that it probably that it happened. And so this is what the Feast of Dedication is all about, that that one day of oil in the menorah, the great menorah, lasted for eight days until they could get more oil kind of like the 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 widow's oil you know and how she kept pouring and pouring and how it lasted the other one lasted till the end okay and so that's what the feast of dedication is all about okay so that's so that's what the jews are remembering okay they're, they're remembering this and how god has done miraculous things it's in the context of all these things that jesus is speaking so you need to understand that Again, the, the mindset of the people is hyped on all this stuff. And he is speaking on what's called Solomon's Porch. It's the southern end of the temple. Interesting to note, again, Acts chapter 2, when Peter, John, and all those guys, they come out and they begin um, proclaiming in other languages, they are on Solomon's Porch as well. Okay, when, G when Peter begins to do his proclamation about who Jesus is and 3,000 souls come to know Christ, he's there at Solomon's porch. And on the sides of Solomon's porch were two mechves, and so the, we call them baptistries, okay? And so people would be baptized, immersed in the name of the teacher who was teaching that day. If they accepted his teaching, they would be there. So, so Jesus is there, and he's teaching there as a rabboni, as a rabbi, okay, during the midst of this feast. So he's, he's not just, um, it's not happenstance. Does that make sense? He's making a proclamation. If you're going to make a proclamation, that's where you'd stand, okay? So that's where he's at. So, so that's where we're at, okay? So this leads us then into this question, and this prompts where we're going today. This leads us to this question that the Jews ask him. And they say, if you are Messiah, 
if you are the Messiah, would you please tell us clearly? This is one of these moments where you want to, I could have had a V8. No, I don't like V8, but I still think of the commercial. You know, for me, it'd be a lift and iced tea. You know, the guy who falls back into the pool and says, anyways, but I'm thinking these guys are nuts. Why? Because of Jesus' response. And the first thing we see is the clarity of Christ's witness. He said, I've told you. And so I've got up all the references. We're not going to read them all right now. We've been going through them. I've told you. I've told you clearly. I am sent from the Father. I am the bread of heaven. I'm all these things. I'm the one who come. I'm the Son of God. And you just what? You don't believe. Isn't it interesting? Look, it says it. He literally says that. And then he says to them, Right on the heels of that, he says, um, I told you, you do not believe. And then he says, the works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. But what? You do not believe. My words spoke it, but you don't believe. My works proved it, but what? You don't believe. So what don't they believe? Think about it. These are only the ones that John shared. And it hit me this week is that there's an ascending if you almost would, an ascending concept of, wow, this is amazing. He turned water into wine. Well, okay, so the remember we talked about at that time, the, the priests of Pharaoh kind of did something like that as well, right? They were able to do kind of that. And then you got, he healed the official son from a distance, but, but that could have been just a, a coincidence. That could have, we don't know that it was like a major healing. I mean, it could have been just got rid of his headache you know, got rid of a fever, whatever. It's kind of a small little thing. You can kind of discount it. But then you get to this guy who's a lame man, right, at a pool. And then you've got he's feeding over 5,000 people. And you start to wonder about, whoa, who is this guy? And then when you're just kind of wondering who is this guy, he does what? He does the impossible. He does the impossible. He heals a blind guy but not just a blind guy. I mean, the guy just didn't become blind yesterday. But he was blind over 20 years. He was born blind. And Steve, as Steve shared, that was just all the things that were going on there. It's, it's, he's, he's, he's creating new eyeballs. He's creating new retina. He's creating a whole new ophthalmologic, am I saying that right, system. Just amazing. And so you got to ask, what else has he got to do? What more does he got to do to prove it? Come back next week. Come, come, come back the next two weeks. Because <laughs> if you think he hasn't done enough, he's going to blow your socks off. And then when we get to the end of the book of John, we find out, we go back to the sign that, that he talked about, his own resurrection, that he raises himself from the dead. I mean, what more can he do? But he basically says, you don't believe because why? You don't want to. And, but you're right. That's where I'm going. Because you're not of my sheep. If you were my sheep, you'd what? Well, you'd hear my voice. Okay. So he gets into this eternal security thing next. Okay. Because he gives to his, his, his sheep life and no one's able to what? pluck them out of his, his hand. So I want, before I go into that, I want to look at these just real quick statements here. If you're a believer, you are sheep in whose flock? God's flock. Does that make sense? Okay. I mean, are we, are we in agreement on this, right? That's what Jesus is saying. You don't believe it because you're not my what? 
sheep. So we'd be in God's flock if we were believers. As a sheep, you are what? Vulnerable. Do you remember the, the, the picture of the, 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 the sheep that was, ah, what's the word? I had in my cast, cast. I never heard the term before, but I thought that was, I've, I've seen the sheep that way, but I've always thought they were dead, but they were cast. They rolled over and they're not able to roll. So that was kind of new to me. That was kind of fun stuff, you know? And so they're very what? Vulnerable, especially in that position. But a sheep is vulnerable in and of itself, but just as it is, okay? And so we are then totally dependent upon the care of our shepherd to protect us. Would you agree with that? Hence, those who declare that you can lose your salvation are really making a comment about the faithfulness of the shepherd. Do you ever think about that? That's actually the statement. If you can lose your salvation, if we're going to get to that we're in his hand, okay? But think about it. If he says that he's done this and you can lose it, then what you're actually saying is that God doesn't mean what he said. Or there can be somebody stronger, including yourself, than God. And that's exactly what David was talking about, the power and greatness of our God. So what does Jesus say regarding our shepherd? First of all, note what I have up here. <laughs> this is amazing to me. Right off the bat, do you even, I mean, do you even grip this? I mean, right off the bat, he talks about the son and he talks about the what? Father. And he talks about them having the what? The same functions. We're going to get to I and the father are one in a moment, okay? But he refers to them both as being what? The shepherd. I mean, I get primarily he's talking about he himself is the good shepherd, but then he talks and turns around and puts it the authority to his father. And so what does the son, the, the son do? Well, first of all, as Chuck pointed out, eloquently last week, and we saw in the video, he leads his sheep with his voice. I watched David, that one of the guy um, calling him out of the, the fog. If you haven't seen that one, go on to YouTube and check that one out. That is amazing. You don't, you, I can see one or two sheep in the lower part of the fog when it first starts, but this older guy goes out and he begins to call him, and these sheep run, run to him. They're not just kind of like wandering, like, oh, but they're running. I don't even know what from what distance they're coming from, but it's amazing to me. And I thought I was thinking about meditating this and, you know, in Shiloh is, was two thirds the way back of my yard. Okay. So if you can kind of picture my yard, she's, she's two thirds the way back. I went to let her in and I clicked the lock. She heard it and comes running up the, the backyard because she knows the sound of the click of the door. Now, I understand that's not me, but same thing if I go outside and I say, Shiloh, come, she'll come running up. She knows my voice. You understand? It's amazing to me. So the, 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 the ability they have to hear, but they heard then this shepherd's voice and they came running. Boy, was I convicted. We're not even talking about, do you come? But do you come running? Are you so excited? to hear the shepherd's voice, <laughs> that you just come because you want to see what he's, what he's doing, where he's leading you, what he's got for you. Secondly, he gifts his sheep with eternal life, but you note the slow ascend here. With his life. He says, I give my sheep what? Eternal life. They'll never lose it. We'll get to that in a moment. They'll never lose it. But how did he give us 
eternal life by exchanging his life for ours. He leads us with his voice. He gifts us with his life. Think about that. The life that I have, I live through the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. My life is only because he willingly laid down his life. And then thirdly, he protects his sheep in his hand. Now, you could say, well, okay, maybe I jumped out of it. Again, I go back to the picture of the, of the, the, the shepherd holding the sheep on his, on his shoulders. It doesn't happen that way. You're basically saying the sheep is stronger than the what? Than the shepherd. It doesn't happen that way. I have them in my hand, and no one is able to what? Snatch them out. And then he turns to, talks about the father, and he brings the father into this thing. This is so mind-boggling, so exciting to me. He says, verse, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. He assures our safety with his omnipotence and his, I wanted to make a new word, omnidefense. Okay. But I thought, all right, so I'll just say it instead of writing it down there. Okay. But it's like he's everywhere present. So his omnipresence is for my defense. There is no one, nothing that is greater than he is. Think about that. The only way, the only way that I could get out of his hand is how? There's only one way I could get out of his hand. Well, okay, never get in his hand, but I didn't get out of his hand then. I never was in his hand. How, how, what is the only way that I can go from being in his hand to not being in his hand? Say again? Nope, blasphemy, because I'm not going to even get in it. Say it again. He moves me out, but he won't. But that's the point. The only way I get out is if he throws me out, if he casts me out. But if he does, he's no longer what? Faithful. He's no longer who he says he is. Do you get it? This is a package deal. That's why I go to Psalm 89. In the promise that God gave to David. That he will never alter the thing that's gone out of his mouth. In, in the people who are covenant theologians and who make the church Israel and Israel the church, who get rid of Israel and make the church totally it. If God could do that, then he's altered the thing that's gone out of his mouth. He's made a promise to David. He's made a promise to Israel. And he swore it by the covenants that he made with the sun, moon, the stars. If God could change what he's uttered, then he's a liar. Do you get it? And how do you know that his promise to you is true? But to Titus, Paul says that God is asudes. 
not false. He's totally true. How cool and exciting is this? Nothing, no one is able to take you out of my Father's hand. Now, all that is purely exciting, but now we get to really what's exciting to me from this passage and why I separated this out, because I didn't want it just to be lost in the midst of the Good Shepherd. Because then Jesus makes this exclamation, I and the Father are what? Are one. Now, this is extremely important when we consider the assertion of Jesus, because think about the context of what is going on at this very moment. What are they ready to stone him over? Are they ready to stone him because he is, is, is submitting to the plan and purpose, the counsel, if you would, of God? No, not at all. They don't care. They, they want to be consistent with that at all. But rather, he's talking about being in his presence, power, and person of God. That's why they want to stone him. Not because his oneness with the Father. And you got to understand, that's what Jehovah Witnesses and what the Mormons want to declare what's going on here. Jesus is just saying he's one in purpose with the Father. Well, they wouldn't be stoning him for that. Because they want to be one in purpose with the Father. Do you get it? That has nothing to do with what's going on here. Why they, they, and they state it very clearly, the reaction of the Jews. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why? He says, for what good work are you doing? He says, we're not doing it for your works. We're doing it because you, being a man, make yourself God. They're not talking about purpose, are they? They understand what Jesus is declaring. That's why they want to kill him, for blasphemy. Because he, being a man, makes himself God. They're not talking about you being a mere man, say that you can be involved in the work of God. Well, then everybody needs to be stoned. All the Pharisees need to be stoned because that's what they declare. But you being a mere man, make yourself God. And that to them was worthy of the stoning. Now, Jesus comes back, and he gives them an explanation from Psalm 82. Turn with me to Psalm 82. We want to read this. Because, again, this is a passage which the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons will go to, to say, see, Jesus even says that he's not really God. He's just saying he's a God. Okay? And so I think we need to go back, and we need to look at it and not ignore it. So Psalm 82, and it starts with Elohim. So the word God there is the word Elohim, okay? So Elohim stands in the congregation of the mighty. Literally, it's the congregation, the assembly of El, which is, again, could either be mighty or gods, okay? So, um, so you got to know that, that this stuff is being played out. God stands in the congregation of the mighty, he judges among the gods, plural. Does it make you struggle a little bit here? Okay, there's, the Bible talks about gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. 
do justice to the afflicted and the needy, deliver the poor and the needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, what? You are gods. In all of your children, in all, in all of you are children of El Elyon, the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, and you shall inherit all nations. Now, there's two ways to interpret this, okay? A, this could be talking about um, angels or demonic angels. You could be talking about the, uh, the, 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 the powers and authorities we read about in Ephesians chapter 6, okay? There's a possibility because it's the assemblies of the, of the gods, okay? And we know Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, behind every idol is a demon, Okay? So there's a concept, a possibility of that being there. It really is a part that's there. But the part that leads toward the second interpretation is what goes on in the midst of this and then Jesus' words themselves, okay? And that is the second interpretation would be that these are judges of the earth, rulers of the earth that sit in the place of God or a God determining the, the um, uh, future, the consequences of an individual. Does that make sense? When you, when you go to a courtroom and you sit before a judge, he makes a what? Decision that's going to affect your, your future, okay? If he chooses that you have to have capital punishment, he has the authority to what? Take your life. He also has the authority to quit you and give you back your life. So in a sense, he sits as a, a god, in a sense, okay? Now, so that's a potential problem. Uh, translation or interpretation of this and it goes on because he says verse two how long will you what judge unjustly and show partiality to the what to the wicked defend the poor and fatherless so he sounds like he's talking to humans at this moment not necessarily to what to angels or demons okay so he sounds like he's talking to a human judge so that's lends a little credence to the second of the interpretations defend the poor and fatherless do justice to the afflicted and needy deliver the poor and the needy Free them from the what? From the hand. Isn't that kind of fun? Free them from the hand of the what? Wicked. Because if you're walking in righteousness, you have the authority and the power to do what? Snatch them out of the hand of the wicked. How fun is that? But nobody can what? Snatch you out of his hand, out of God's hand. How cool is that, right? In, in the authority of God, you have the privilege, you have the right to go on that sorte into the, into the enemy's territory and snatch them, just as you've been snatched. Isn't that what we read in Colossians 1, David? Is it, is it Colossians 1 that we read about that, that we were with the uh, power of darkness, but we've been snatched out? It was like a sorte, like God took some, some green berets. He took some special forces on your behalf and sent them in. Yeah, I got some Marines, right? And he sent them in to do a sorte, to deliver you from the enemy's hands and to present you into the kingdom of the son of his love. How cold is that? Well, he says, deliver them from the poor and needy. They do not know, nor do they understand, they walk about in darkness. And then he says, I said, this is again, God, Elohim speaking, you are gods and all of you are children of the most high. So, so individually as followers of God, he said that they were what? Children of God. 
Now, what happened to you and I when, you, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, according to Galatians chapter 4? It also Romans chapter 8. We become his sons. We have the adoption of sonship. And so I am a child of God. I am a son of God. I'm not the son of God, but I am a child of God. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me here? Okay, this is important, okay? Because how you understand this is going to play in. And note what Jesus is saying here. This thing's been written for how long? Who wrote it? Asaph. So it's been written for a couple hundred years, at least, maybe even thousands, right? And the people have what? They've accepted it. They've received it. They didn't have any problem with this. They got it. God was doing what? God called the judges, the rulers, little g-gods. And they didn't have a problem with it. He says, so, come back now to, to, to John 10. He says, so, if, if you don't have a problem with that, why do you got a problem when the real deal shows up? I am the son of God. Why is it blaspheme for me to declare who I am? That's what he's asking them. I said in my word I was going to come and dwell in your midst. I mean, I told you that numerous times. Here I am right here in front of you. And then he gets into the exhortation. This is a powerful stuff to me. He says, and I know what I'm telling you right now is extremely hard for you to accept, for you to believe. I get it. How many of you understand the triunity of God? Can you explain it to me? Marcia, this is probably the, the hardest part in Marcia's mind relationship. She told me that last night. Because my I was still, when I went to bed last night, man, my brain's just still spinning on all this stuff. She's just, ah, oh, that frustrates me when, when you keep spinning on this stuff. I'm not spinning. This is exciting stuff. It's not like I'm worrying about whether Jesus is God anymore. I'm not worried about it. I just want to know it deeper and deeper and deeper. This is so exciting. I'm going to talk about another moment, moment in, in another one of these in a moment. But so Jesus says to me, he says, I know, I get it. I get it. This is, this is so hard for you. I get it. You, I was born of a, of a woman you don't understand. You don't believe that I was born of a virgin, that actually the father was overshadowed and, you know, all this kind of, and it's hard for you to get all this. I get it. But look at what I've done. If you can't believe me because just because of my words. So apart from this message, and I'm we're just I show we get together one day and I say, hey man, do you know I'm I'm really God in the flesh? Instantly you're gonna say, What? I think I guess a psychologist that I want you to visit, or a psychiatrist, or whatever, you know. Okay. But what if, what if I had just healed a guy who was blind from birth? What if I'd raised somebody from the dead? What if I was able to feed 5,000 plus people with just five loaves of bread and two fish? Now, all of a sudden, you're going to start what? You're going to start struggling like these guys are struggling. Put yourself in their position. When's the last time it happened? <laughs> it hasn't. And now all of a sudden, God shows up. And you're like, this doesn't compute. This doesn't compute. I can't do this. I can't do this. One of the greatest lines in a, in a play or a movie that I've ever seen came from the sight and sound production of Jesus last year during COVID. They, they put out a free um, sight and sound in, I can't remember what, what it was called, but it was, um, but it was about the life of Christ, life of Jesus. And 
and Nicodemus was called Nick and Joseph of Arimathea was called Joe and Nick and Joe, they, 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 they were talking together. And I can't remember if it was Nick talking to Joe or Joe talking to Nick. I think it was Joe talking. And he says, well, Nick, you know, he's got to come in somebody's lifetime. Why not ours? I love the line. I love the line because that's, it, to me, it sums up everything of that day. You're looking for Messiah to come. You're looking for Messiah to come. You're looking for Messiah to come. And all of a sudden he shows up and you're like, oh, no, no, no. This just doesn't happen this way. But it is. Well, Nick, you know, he's got to come in somebody's lifetime. Why not ours? Do you believe that Jesus could be showing up today? Do you really, really believe that? I mean, we get lip service to it. We give lip service to it. But do we really believe it could be today? How exciting would that be? And then he has the climax to this whole thing. Now, you got to get what he says right here. Again, Jesus is, has this knack of saying little bitty statements that are just like, boom, on you. Because he ends this whole thing saying, but if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Literally, it says, in me is the Father. I also am in him. Do you ever see a bubble inside a bubble? That's cool. But that's not what this is all about. Because that's the first part. You get a bubble inside a bubble. But now the bubble on the outside is inside the bubble on the inside at the same time. Boggle my how do you? I mean, I get a bubble inside a bubble, I can handle that one. But the bubble on the outside is also on the inside of the bubble on the inside. I try to find some word of mutual reciprocation or whatever that I wanted to, you know, boil this thing down to. And it's like, I, I can't come up with anything. I can't. How can one thing inside the other thing? Well, that's inside the other. And that's exactly what he's saying. The father's in me. Well, that's the fullness of the Godhead bodily, right? Whew, we got that. But at the exact same time, I am in the Father. He hasn't even gotten to the Holy Spirit yet. <laughs> Who lives where? In you. And do you realize we're going to get to this in John 14, John 16? But Jesus also says that the world can't handle this, okay? Because it doesn't believe. But when all this happens, we, he's talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are going to come and abide in you. It's not just the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's in the Father, and the Father's in the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, and the Son is in the Father, and the Father's in the Son, and the Son is in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's in the Son. Do you get what I'm saying? It's kind of like all bubbles and bubbles and bubbles and bubbles and bubbles, and they live inside of you. And we're told in Colossians, that we're hid where? Where? In him. So somehow I get kneaded into that whole dough thing. <laughs> Say again? There's a lot of layers. I hope I'm boggling your brain a little bit. I, I, you know, I just want to give you just a little sense of the, the extreme excitement that we have in Christ. How cool is that? No one is able to snatch you. No one. How many? 
no one, zero, nada, is able to snatch you. Why? Man, they're one. They are interlinked. Kids like to try to divide the father and the, the mom and the dad, right? Play one off the other. We do that even in, in, in work situations, you know? Can't play them off each other. Because <laughs> when you're talking to one, you're really talking to the other. So who's Jesus to you? Who is he? Is he Yahweh incarnate? Are you starting to grip a little bit of what all this really means? I mean, I love this series from that perspective. It just causes me to continually focus on and think about and meditate upon this over and over and over again. Is Jesus truly your shepherd? Have you received his free gift of eternal life? He gives to his sheep eternal life. Look, I don't know whether you're sheep or not. That's between you and him. But my sheep hear my what? Voice, and they what? They follow me. In some manner, you know that you know that you know. Whatever that is, to whatever extent that is. Are you, are the father and the son guarding your life in redemption, or are you doing it? That's probably a good test right there. Who's, who are you trusting to be guarding your redemption? Are you listening for and following his voice? And, oh, and how do you view the Godhead? That's a big thing. And then is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father.